just going to continue. Just going to continue looking at Judges chapter 8. And I'm going to begin from verse 22. So we're continuing in the story, the last chapter in the life of Gideon. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Israelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed at opera, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land endured peace forty years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had seventy sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in opera of the Abirazites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who'd rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, for all the good things he'd done for them. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you now for all the good things that you do for us, for all the good things you give to us. We thank you for the opportunity to honor you as we bring back in our offering just a, a token, a symbol of our gratitude towards you. And Father, we thank you that you have good things for us today in your word, and we pray that you'll open our hearts to receive of this now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning in, in our studies in Judges, we finally come to the end, the final chapter in the, the story of the life of Gideon. And, and it's been a wonderful story, has it not? One that I know has excited and encouraged many of us. How this man, starting from such inauspicious beginnings, hiding in a wine press, found there threshing out his wheat. How he was able to be used so mightily, able to achieve so much in his life for the Lord. Yes, it is thrilling how in the Lord he's risen to such heights. What we're going to look at now, though, 
is the so often forgotten or ignored chapter of Gideon's life. That is how, at its conclusion, in his final chapter, he sank back again and beyond into the very depths, into the shadows from which he'd emerged. Now, as we look at that, we're going to look at this, we're going to touch on two or three at least important issues in the course of that this morning. However, what I want to now make clear to you is that the, the main issue that we're going to look at this morning, that which is at the heart of everything else that we're going to look at, that we're going to cover, that which ultimately was the cause of Gideon's downfall, was the problem of compromise. And it's compromise that's the key to what we're looking at. And you know, in compromise, little things matter. Little things ultimately can add up to an awful lot. Now remember that, if you remember, whoa, nothing else that I share this morning. Let me just illustrate this by way of a story out of, well, still pretty recent, I suppose, national history. And that is, in the late 1930s, Britain and France committed themselves to protecting the interests of Czechoslovakia, knowing that, that Germany at that time, under Adolf Hitler, had designs on part of the, that land. So Hitler announced that Germany had been dishonoured in the treaties made after the First World War. And he said that unless certain conditions were met, that he would invade Czechoslovakia. Neville Chamberlain, the then British Prime Minister, immediately flew to Berlin to meet with Hitler. And pressurised, threatened with war, he caved in. So in the middle of the night on the 21st of September 1938, the British and French ambassadors wakened the Czech Premier to announce that their countries were not going to keep their treaty obligations. Eight days later, Britain, France, Germany and Italy signed the Munich Pact, which granted Hitler the Sudetenland, that is the northern part of Czechoslovakia. And it was then that, that Chamberlain flew back to Britain, waving this pact in his hand and proclaiming the now infamous words, peace in our time, peace with honour. And a sense of great relief flooded throughout Britain because nobody wanted to face the horrors of another war so soon after that great First World War. And Chamberlain was acclaimed throughout the country as a hero. One man, though, was not taken in. Winston Churchill rose in the House of Commons to speak words of incredible perception that border almost upon the prophetic. For this is what he said. Britain and France had to choose between war and dishonor. They chose dishonor. They will have war. The people should know that we have sustained a defeat without war. They should know that we have passed an awful milestone in our history. And that terrible words have for the time being been pronounced against the Western democracies. Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. 
This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup which will be proffered to us year by year unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigor we arise again and take our stand for freedom as in the olden times. Now you see, what we have here are two highly intelligent men. One who sees his action as a one-off, a one-off that will deal with the problem, that will deal with the need that he saw. The other, though, who sees it rightly as the beginning, the first step, and the slippery slope that leads to humiliation and disaster. That's the vital difference between them here, you see. One can see, one can discern what ultimately is at stake. The other cannot. Because, you see, it is, there are times when it's, it's not wrong to compromise. Indeed, there are times when it's wise to compromise. There are even times when love demands that, that we compromise, that we give way a little bit, that we find a middle ground. But we should never compromise on points of principle. And certainly as Christians, when we get down to the essentials of our faith, that which makes someone a Christian, that which makes a church a church, and when we get down to the essentials of Christian living, the kind of holy and moral lives that God demands of His people, in these areas, there can be no compromise. A good balance, I believe, is found in the, the famous words of Muldenius, where he said, on the essential points, unity. We have to have unity. On the questionable points, liberty. In those areas we allow freedom, and in everything, love. Even when we strongly disagree, we disagree in love. Well, let's see now how this relates to Gideon's life. Let's see what effect compromise here had on his life's final chapter. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at right principles. And we find that here in, in verse 22 and, and 23. And, and what we see is that, that here, Gideon's life actually went wrong just when it seemed at this point. And what he did, when, when it seemed that he got everything right. As it so often is, it was when here he was at his strongest, and perhaps because of that he then became too cocky and self-reliant, it was then that the devil sneaked in and brought him right down to his knees. You see, Gideon's response to the offer that's made to him at this point is magnificent, it's wonderful, and it's full of, of spiritual insight and spiritual perception. Just listen to, to what's said. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The first question surely here is, well, why did Gideon refuse this honor? What would have been so wrong with it? Why here did he refuse to be king? Well, as I see it, there are two problems, two reasons for this, probable reasons. First, because in this particular instance, Gideon saw that there was something wrong with the people. 
Something wrong with these people. Because do you notice there's something significant missing here? There's no hint of a word of gratitude, of praise, of recognition, of thanksgiving to God. You see, these men, these people, they aren't like Moses. They aren't like Joshua or Deborah. People whose hearts are are filled with love for God and therefore who are ready to give praise and recognition to the God who actually has given them the victory. These people aren't like that. No, these are carnal. These are fleshly people. These are people who obviously don't walk close to the Lord because they're ready to give credit to the creature rather than to the creator. They're ready to give credit to the instrument rather than the one who wields the instrument. And so because of this then, because of the people they are, because of where this offer comes from, Gideon wants nothing to do with it. But far more importantly, Gideon wanted nothing to do with this because he also saw that here that there was something wrong, that was something fundamentally wrong with the principle. With the principle, yes, with the principle that a man could be king over the people of God. For you see, of course, this was already the case with all the tribes and nations around Israel. All of these tribes, they all had kings. And obviously Israel looked on at this and, and they wanted to be like these other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else. They thought that they could see advantages in it. That one king, a single figurehead, would be better able to organize their affairs, better able to inspire them for battle. But you see, this was never the will of God for his people. There was only ever intended to be one king, one ruler over the people of God. And that king was and always should be the Lord himself. And indeed, in in 1 Samuel 8, when the Lord there finally gives in to the demands of his people and finally gives them their king, there he also gives them, at the very same time, a warning, hinting that the power that seems so attractive to them, that power could also corrupt. That an absolute ruler can quickly become an absolute tyrant. Someone concerned neither about God's glory nor about his people's well-being, but only about his own self-interest. Just listen to what the Lord says. 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord told Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods as they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. You see, God's will for his people is not that they live under a dictatorship, that they live in an autocracy under the rule of one man. That's not God's will. Not even that they live in a democracy governed by the will of the masses, the will of the people. No, God's will for his people, this was his perfect will for them in the Old Testament and certainly in the New, and is his will for his people today, is that God's people live 
in a theocracy. That is seeking together to find and to live under the will of our theos, under the will of our God. And that, you see, I believe, is the non-negotiable essence of all true Christian leadership, of all true church life, that we are living together, seeking to live in submission to the will of God, our King. Now, of course, there has to be leadership in a church. There has to be. But you see, that leadership has to be seen to be seeking the will of God, seen to be seeking to live in submission to God in key areas of doctrine and of Christian living. Now, even in doing that with the best heart, there will be mistakes made. We're fallible people. We're bound to make mistakes. But as long as these mistakes are not made in essential areas, that is regarding to key doctrines and that holy living, then still such leadership still deserves our support, if not our agreement, our support. However, if we see a leadership that is not submitted to God and His Word, that does not seem to have a heart to, to follow after Him, to seek Him in those essential areas, then we, we shouldn't support them. In fact, to do so would be an act of betrayal against God. And you know, no matter what form of of church government, uh, a church practices, I still believe that the same essential ingredients have to be in there somewhere if it's really going to work. It has to be in there. That is a leadership that's prepared with all their heart to seek after God and a people that are prepared to follow. But always with that right to challenge their leadership, even to change their leadership, if that heart for the Lord isn't there. Now, actually, in the Baptist setup, that's built in. This is built into our idea of congregational government with the church meeting being the ultimate authority. But you see, in other churches too, if only by refusal to serve, to give of their labor, and I would say a less satisfactory, less biblical way, but in those churches too, a people can correct, challenge, and change a leadership whose heart and mind are not after God. And of course, we have to admit this, uh, that, that sometimes as Baptists, we perhaps abuse this. Let's not kid ourselves on that we always get everything right. And that sometimes we do seem to see our church government, or at least to live out our church life, as a form of democracy rather than theocracy. And we do that when we come to church meetings, seeking first to argue our case, our point of view, rather than to seek the mind of the Lord. And when we follow our leadership, but we only do it when it suits us, rather than giving them our wholehearted backing. And all that's wrong. And it's unbiblical. And it's unspiritual. I want to say to you now that this worries me far less than a trend that I can see emerging nowadays, perhaps as a response that's been gone for quite some time. And that is of people saying, listen, we're fed up with servant leadership. We're fed up of corporate leadership. Because sometimes it seems to take so long to get things done, so long to, to get things going. 
So what we need now then is we need a dynamic leader. We need someone who will come and, and take a hold of things by the scruff of the neck. Someone who will force us down the right path and will brook no opposition. It worries me when I hear this. When I hear God's people again basically asking for a dictator. Asking for a king. Because that's what it's about. And it worries me even more that at times it seems there are men queuing up for, even carving out for themselves that kind of role, that kind of leadership style. Because remember the Lord's warning in 1 Samuel 8. Think of what these men will do. So Gary Inrig in his commentary on Judges, he reminds us that nearly every deviation from God's truth occurs when men take the place that belong to God. And Neil Anderson, who I've quoted from before to you, he issues this, this warning to the church. He says that there are historic leadership roles in Scripture. Prophet, that is preaching and teaching. Priest, pastoring and shepherding. And king, administration, leadership. Only Jesus in his perfection is capable of occupying all three roles simultaneously. And he goes on, I believe we need the checks and balances of a plurality of leaders in the church. Distributing these three critical roles to more than one person. No one can survive his own unchallenged authority. Every true committed Christian in a leadership role needs to submit himself and his ideas to other mature believers who will hold him accountable. If your pastor or your leadership is not under authority, if they don't display the heart of a shepherd and a servant, get out of that church. You see, there's no room for dictators there's no room for a dictatorship within the church of Jesus Christ. God's people already have a king, and they need no other. And Gideon, by his reply here, wonderful, shows that he, he knows this. He shows that he's got a hold of this, that he understands it, that his life is built on right principles. He's got things so right here at this point in his life. But sadly... That doesn't stop him falling into disaster by virtue of wrong living. Wrong living. And it all begins, it all revolves around Gideon's collecting of this gold, part of the plunder of the battle from his fellow Israelites. Not that I believe that it was wrong for him to ask for this gold. I don't think it was. At the time, it would be something that would be unexpected and, and actually a fairly modest request of a, a general who led his army to victory. And after all, we see Gideon didn't even want this for himself. Now, the problem lay in what Gideon went on to do with this gold. That is, he used this gold, a fairly substantial amount of gold, probably about 43 pounds in weight. He used it to decorate an ephod, which he had placed in opera, his hometown. Now, you see, the significance of this lies in the fact that the ephod, which was really a, a highly decorated kind of apron, was that this was, was part 
of the uniform of the high priest of Israel. Part of the uniform of the man who was supposed to be the main intermediary between God and his people. And what in particular the ephod was used for was to hold the, the urim and tumin. Now, these are two, I suppose, stones of some kind that were used in some way, we don't know how exactly, to discern the will of God. Now, all of that is a, a bit mysterious. But that's not really all that important to us. What's important here is what Gideon did here and why. That is, he, he had, as we've said, his own ephod made. He had it liberally embellished with gold. And then he had it placed in his own hometown. Why? Well, as we've just seen, Gideon was concerned that God should rule over his people. He, he just said that. But essential to this was the need for the priests, and particularly for the high priests, to share with the people the word of God and then to lead them into the will of God. But you see, the, the priesthood here at this point, starting with the high priest, who at God's command was based at Shiloh, the priesthood at this time was totally corrupt and they were failing absolutely in this duty. And so Gideon then, who God had spoken to in the past, who he knew, who God had used mightily in the past, he felt obviously that he should stand in the breach here and he should take the high priest's place. Having made for himself this, this ephod even more magnificent, far more magnificent than the high priest. But do you see the problem here? Though? Do you see the problem? This isn't something that he's been told to do by the Lord. This is something that he's decided to do by himself. As I read somewhere during the week, the essence of all compromise and ultimately of all heresy is that we believe that we have the right to alter or improve the revealed will of God. You see, compromise is about us going our way rather than God's. And whether we do that by ignoring, altering, or even adding to what God has said, what he asks of us, that in the end doesn't really matter. But for Gideon, this really was the beginning of the slippery slope. Because this man who did the insight to see the big principle couldn't see here how spiritually wrong his actions now were. He couldn't see, he didn't have the perception to see where potentially all this might lead. And so he placed his epod in opera. And what happened? God's people, who at this time always seemed to be only one step away from paganism, began to worship it. Verse 27. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And also, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, in what ways did it become a snare? Well, it would seem obvious to me that, that one way that it became a snare, by virtue of the fact that Gideon was able to support many wives and many children, was in that Gideon began in some way to live off of the offerings, to live off of the, the tribute that this epod attracted. And no doubt he, 
he tried to justify this. You know, that this offering was to the Lord. And, and as the servant of the Lord, all he was doing was, was just taking his share, taking that which was necessary for his support. You see, what actually happened here was that Gideon began to live the lifestyle of a king. I mean, only kings at that time, pagan kings, had 70 sons. Only kings had many wives. And to have a son by a concubine, basically a mistress, to have a son whose name Abimelech actually means my father is king. This is not the life of a faithful servant of God. No, this is the the life of a man who sadly and tragically has lost the way, who's become the very thing that he said he did not want to be. You see, Gideon, who'd refused the offer to be king, who'd seen the big principle, had because of compromise, inch by inch slipped into being the worst kind of king imaginable. A greedy, immoral, waster, of a king, leading his people here nowhere but into disaster. Because what do we read immediately following his death? Verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites prostituted themselves to the bowels. Isn't that a tragic end? Isn't that a, a terrible epitaph for the life of Gideon? That this man who'd achieved so much for God should in the end finish his life materially wealthy but spiritually nowhere. And all because he failed to see the spiritual implications of what he was doing. All because he let go of the lordship of God in one area of his life. And all I want to say to you here is that I've seen too many Christians follow in the footsteps of Gideon. Too many Christians who in one way or another have let self, self-gratification, self-satisfaction, who've allowed that to become central to their life rather than really living with Jesus Christ as Lord. And in the short term maybe, they might seem to have gained, you know, to have a good life, to enjoy life. But ultimately, spiritually, they're losers. Because despite all that they may have, their lives are empty. They're meaningless. And what they'll achieve by their lives will mean nothing. So as much as the life of Gideon was an encouragement to us, may its end be a challenge. A challenge to never let up, to never give an inch as far as the essentials of faith are concerned. A challenge to make sure that as far as we are able, to make sure that in every area of our lives, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is King. And may God just give each one of us the perception and insight to understand just what the demands of that are for us today. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you today for 
for Gideon, for his life. So much of it was an inspiration, but at the end, it ended up tragically. Lord, he, he let go of your authority. He decided he could do things better, that he didn't need to consult you, and he went his own way. Father, help us in every part of our lives to make sure that Jesus Christ truly is enthroned as our Lord and our King. Amen.